your artist handle on Instagram is Sword and Pencil, which what I love about it is every space there needs to be theological like conversation and in Instagram social media space there needs to be this as well. And you've kind of been able to take that mantle and like do art, but also do like deep theology through Instagram stories, which is crazy to think about, but you do and and then you you you, you curate the best memes from all over the internet and put them on your stories yes. as well, which I love. Thank you. I do appreciate that. I work pretty hard at it. One of the things I was chatting with some mutual friends of ours who can remain nameless, but one of the best things about not being associated with any church or organization is I don't have to have like a brand persona or platform. And so I can post memes and not have to worry about any church board fallout. And because of that, we all get to laugh. No worries, yes. right? I'm the scapegoat yes. and I'm a-okay with that. Theology needs to be balanced with some some good old fashioned humor. Yeah, so, we need more people like Chesterton. Yeah. Not saying I'm Chesterton, but <laughs> we do need more people like him. Yes. And then you started this other thing called Everyday Saints. I don't know the way that I heard your pitch for it, but I probably will do a disservice for it. So how would you explain Everyday Saints? Um, so Everyday Saints is uh, like a spiritual formation platform oriented around, founded upon the transcendentals. Um, and so it's my opinion that what we do matters, how we do it matters, and why we do it matters. And I think for the most part, some of the issues that we face in the modern world are going about the how, the why, and the what, in either incorrect or derivative ways. This sounds like so condescending, but there is a thing that the, the Christian tradition has maintained and just in modern times, we're like, yeah, we don't need that. That doesn't, that's like, you can't monetize that. It's not very sexy. And so the idea is that the entirety of your life, the goal of life is to become a saint. And the entirety of your life needs to be built up upon the transcendentals, which we'll be chatting about today. Um, and in order to accomplish becoming a saint, you do that. And so this platform is essentially just walking people through what that looks like month by month. Yeah, so we're in a, we're going to chat about the transcendentals today we're about to jump into an easter tide series um where kind of taking from nt right where he talks about how um because of the resurrection we're restored to our true vocation as humans um followers of jesus are restored to their their our humanity's original vocation imaging god to the world and um and part of that is living under living through the transcendentals um the things that like point towards God, his glory, his goodness, who were to be in this world that image him. So um, so we're going to jump into that. I'm here with Jess, um, associate pastor here, David B., David Bennett, our theologian in residence, and we're just going to jump into a a conversation around the transcendentals. So um, you want to say hi, David? How you feeling? Hi, Josh. It's been really great to be in contact, and I'm excited to hear. I mean, I always find a connection point between you know, philosophy and and the church to be a really, really important thing that we've kind of lost. Mm-hmm. And there's a real renewal, I think, in the academic world against this kind of philosophy versus the Bible and coming back to the idea that Jesus was also the ultimate philosopher. Mm. So Dave's about to have a transcendental moment now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Listen, the Shekinah is glory. Shekinah glory. So here we are. Yeah, the charismatics were right in there. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I'm super excited to, yeah. to, to crack into it. 
Yeah, hi, Josh. Uh, I'm Jessica, and I'm here just to kind of bring that really practical application as a pastor of taking just all the things we talk about theologically and then bring it down to kind of how we do that in real life. So super excited. Yeah, I love that. It's, guys, honestly, a pleasure and honor to be here. So thank you. So cool. All right, so Josh, Transcendentals, what are they? So the Transcendentals, um, if you don't know, there are three main ones. I mean, there are like broader ideas people have, but there are three main ones that people agree on, which are goodness, truth, and beauty. My exposure to them happened kind of like in passing when I was taking my master's. So I did my master's in theology and I was probably writing a paper on, I went to like a, a reformed Baptist seminary and I am neither of those things now. Uh, but doing some stuff, I think, on um, Christology, I was reading a bunch of uh, Catholic theologians. And once you start reading any Catholic theologians, you start experiencing this massive overlap between theology and philosophy that I did not have in my Protestant upbringing. And they just kept mentioning goodness, truth, and beauty. Um, and I didn't have, like, it just kind of hit me at the at that time. Um, and I didn't have like the ability to process what those things were. So fast forward years later, I was reading some Peter Kreeft and I got exposed to them more deeply. And as that happened, I started seeing those concepts of goodness, truth, and beauty everywhere. So those are the transcendentals. And then like they are, they permeate all of reality as we know it. Yes. Yeah, so where did they come from? Like, Goodness, truth, and beauty. Where did this, these ideas come from? Where did like the idea that goodness is a transcendental, and what does transcendental mean? Like philosophically, what does it mean? Maybe theologically, what does it mean? Yeah. Um, so like their origin comes from like classical Greek philosophy, um, where Plato and Aristotle, a bunch of the Stoics as well, they had this idea that. Um, this is going to get really nerdy for a second, and then we'll bring it right back down to planet We're Earth. Here for it. Okay, so they had this idea that abstract objects and numbers um, were objective, timeless, and independent of the physical world. So, like, if you took the idea of like, uh, and David, you can correct me if you if I'm going too crazy off the rails, but if you took this idea of like um, a book they had this idea that there was a timeless, um, spaceless, perfect book that existed in the realm of the forms. And mm -hmm. every book that exists in our natural world derives its meaning and being from that. That's the, there's a goal that it should be like, and every book that we have should correspond to that. The Greeks had these ideas um around like there's these major themes in classical greek philosophy of epistemology so our knowing of aesthetics which is beauty and of ethics which is morals and essentially what happened in the first like five six hundred years a.d is tons of that space the greek mediterranean space was christianized and as it was christianized the philosophy the platonic and aristotelian thought was also christianized and all these Christian philosophers were saying, okay, this epistemology, this stuff we know, the truth, that finds its source in God. 
the stuff on aesthetics and beauty that also finds its source in God. The stuff about ethics and morals that also finds its source in God. And so from my understanding, I don't think that Plato and Aristotle ever mentioned straight up the transcendentals, these ideas, but the, the, the seed bed of where like medieval Christian philosophical thought where they, they derived it from was from classical philosophy. Yeah. And I think within that is also, there was a big conflict around what the Hebrew tradition said about those transcendentals. Um, and there was often a fear of becoming, you know, pagan or Gentile within the Jewish community. So there's a lot of conflict over what did those, how did those transcendentals come to bear um, epistemologically if you're a, a Jew who's who's trying to be covenantly faithful to God and you're looking at a culture which has a high value on these transcendentals but is so like morally wicked and not in alignment in alignment with covenant faithfulness of God how do you cope and I think as Christians in our time we struggle because our culture is we've gone into a moment where we no longer get to define those things so directly anymore. And so we feel like a disjunction. We feel this kind of sense that we're not the ones who get to speak over that. Uh, and we, we, we see this like disorderedness. And I think that's why, you know, Augustine, who I think is seeing like a huge, they're seeing a big revival in interest in Augustine because he did that work. He did the work of being like, we're not the majority we're being blamed uh, for the fall of the Roman Empire, kind of in the way we are being blamed for a lot today as Christians. And um, I'm going to subvert the interpretation of those transcendentals from all different types of philosophy with the truth of Jesus's incarnation and with, through a Christian ontology of love. And so I think we're at a cultural moment where we we the reason we have this pricking kind of interest in the transcendentals again is because no we need to reform and reshape how we as a church are speaking to these because we no longer like we want to captivate a world that's being told very different things mm -hmm. and we want to captivate you know like peter berger talks about um signs of transcendence or signals of transcendence that are just everywhere but it feels like the church has been like well i'll just pre i'll preach the word and then everybody will come in it's like no we've got to do this back work of the deeper work with the transcendentals to prepare the ground for the word of God. Yeah. Yeah, David, I think you picked up two major things that are, I think like the gateways into what I would say, like we need a resurgence of like virtue ethics and like classical philosophy and like a more broad classical philosophy that takes into account Hebrew conceptions of philosophy. The first one is we just think we can preach the word which in my conception of reality, and when I say mine, I just like, this is what I believe, but my, I believe the broad Christian tradition holds this, which is knowing only by truth is one third of the puzzle. Like that's only one third the game. We have to know God and know self and others and neighbor, not just by truth, but also by beauty and by goodness. And so in a lot of spaces, like I, I try to conceptualize this, like this is how I started trying to rationalize what this looked like in my day-to-day -day life. I grew up in a very Reformed Baptist world, very intellectual world, very heady world, and I wondered why my life didn't change by just subscribing to everything that the truth there had to offer. 
And I wondered why people kept leaving our churches and going to other places that had beauty more front and center or like goodness more front and center, like charitable social work and stuff that they're doing. And so I think um, one of the things we're experiencing with the broad culture is um, we can't have like a one pronged quote unquote attack in the culture war where we're just saying, well, we're coming at you with truth. And if you reject it, you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and think that's going to help. And we can't just do these acts of service that don't have any foundation in what we believe as far as like kingdom ethics, like where do our ethics come from? And then beauty, if it has no source in God, every aspect of our culture's view of beauty ends up being perverted and selfish rather than pure and generous. And so um, I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing, like you said, is those Hebrew conceptions of embodied love. And that's where I think the Greeks and Hebrews really overlap is that every act of God is love because God is just acting out his essential character of love. And so as we conceptualize what it means to be a Christian, it's just something like love God, love neighbor, which is what Jesus said. Yeah. And I think with that also is, you know, when Socrates, Plato was writing about Socrates, you know, and, and recording his story, the Greek society at the time, you know, at least it's reported that they, they wanted to kill him because he was saying there's one God. There's not like multiple, almost like a relativistic view of the divine. It was like, no, there's an objective source of beauty, an objective source of morality, you know, an objective source of truth. And he almost was like a proto-Jesus in the sense that he pointed them all back to God. And Jesus does that in this like really crazy way by dying on a cross. And I wrote this paper on like how the ugliness or the deformity of the cross becomes this paradoxical gateway into true beauty, like the reality of the Trinity, the resurrection, that the gateway to these transcendentals must be through the cross, that human flourishing, eudaimonia, which was the Greek word, cannot happen except through that. And at Oxford, I was with a professor um, called Nigel Bigger, who is teaching us all of this. And he was talking about eudaimonia and the transcendentals and actually what inspired my whole interest in academic theology was that he, I asked him, well, where does your view of human flourishing involve the cross? Like, where's the cross in your view of the transcendentals? And he was like, it's not there. And it's really interesting because a lot of his views like veer into this like incapacity to accept the full authority of scripture and like almost he didn't want to go through the cross to get to a view of human flourishing. So I think this is super important for the church. Like we need to have some consensus on like we are shaped by Christ as the embodiment of these three mm. transcendentals. And then going back to like, because I, I'd imagine some people hear that like, let's say this came from uh, like Plato or Aristotle and they thought that, there's something on earth that matched something mm. and it transcended its thing. And that's where this comes from. Like, well, shouldn't we reject that? Just, but actually if you read Genesis one and two, that's kind of what's happening where, where God is making like um, a earthly uh, image of mm. a heavenly reality. reality. 
and they image each other, and then he makes us in his image, and he says that that you that you this whole thing, mm-hmm. Earth, is to transcend itself and point to a greater reality. Yes. And so I do think that even in the very beginning of Scripture, you you also see this idea of this transcendent. I think, and I I don't want to jump ahead here, but I I also think that what's missing in our world today is like a we demythologized everything and demystified mm-hmm. everything and disenchanted everything mm-hmm. so much so where we don't we hunger for transcendence mm-hmm. like tell me this isn't all there is tell me there's this points to something greater mm-hmm. tell me that 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 thing that relationship that mm-hmm. the body so, th- this points beyond itself and i think you have to kind of go back um to to the transcendentals to get there and i think that's what's so beautiful and recently i was studying um second timothy and it was talking about how the scriptures are, are there to, to like equip us to 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 make us um, so, so the servant of God mm. is thoroughly equipped for every good work, and thoroughly equipped is not the best translation. It's like that it would be complete, and this um this this Greek word um, uh, complete is um uh, artios or artios. I'm probably saying it wrong. Oh, yes, artios, which which means it's like something that is perfectly suited to its nature. Mm. So there is this like thing that we were created to be and there's thing there's like th- there's like apples that were created to be apples and oranges that were created to be oranges and humans that are created to be humans and then there's and that's there there is something that's that we live into that's perfectly suited to the thing that we're supposed to be mm. i think that also has transcendental like qualities in it that there is this thing that points beyond itself mm. to its maker to its to its to its creator and I think getting back to the transcendentals, mm. um, even when you say that, like when you say that to somebody, goodness, truth, and beauty, they're like, yeah. Because like, mm. I, I think, well, Josh, talk a little bit about like how you can't ever have enough of these things. That's one of the ways that you can have a transcendental. The theological, philosophical concept of the transcendentals is that goodness and truth and beauty all find their source in God, which essentially means... Everything God does, he does because of love, and all truth is God's truth, all goodness is God's goodness, all beauty is God's beauty. So when he parts, like when he lovingly creates the universe, everything that God made when he says it's good, um, it's exactly what you said there, Dave, it is good for its intended purpose, and God's all of God's intended purposes are reflecting his goodness, truth, and beauty, either for his own glory or for us to be able to participate in. And so as humans, our core, our essence, who we are way deep down is resembling and that's what part of the image means is we have goodness, truth and beauty within us because the source of all goodness, the source of all truth and the source of all beauty created us. And so that's where that longing comes from, where our creator created us to participate fully in his infinite truth, infinite goodness, and infinite beauty. And then the rest of the cosmos acts as signposts, if used well, either for us to understand him better or to orient us towards him. That's why we can't have enough. Like you can never have enough beauty, right? It's not like you have one good cigar, one good steak, one good glass of wine, one good uh, night with your wife and say, yep, okay, I'm good. That's all I needed. Um, it's not like you figure out one thing. It's not like you, like, 
I did my undergrad in physics. Um, there's tons of books on this too, just the joy of learning. It's not like you learn something once and say, man, that's so cool. I'm done learning forever. Um, it's not like you give a cup of cold water to someone who needs it and be like, yeah, okay, I did my act of charity. I never want to do that again. I never want to receive goodness again either. Um, and so like a thought experiment you can do just to conceptualize our need and desire for these is picture a world where these things did not exist. Beauty is the easiest one and the scariest one in my mind to conceptualize. Like if you picture your life with no beauty, so no more sunsets, no more TV, no more art, no more phones, no more photos, no more movies, no more music, uh, no more architecture. Everything just becomes like, say, 1960s brutalism everywhere you go. Uh, no more form, just all function. Who wants to live in that world with the removal of all beauty? But if you said to someone, hey, you can live in a world where beauty is maximalized everything is as beautiful as it possibly can be and you have a choice of which one you want to participate in be like yeah i'll take maximum beauty all day every day um and so i think dave what you mentioned like understanding and you too david understanding that our core is being made in god's image which means we are good, true, and beautiful in and of ourselves, like our ontology, our makeup, who we are, our nature of being. Um, and also we crave those things. But because of the fall, because of sin, and because we can't do it perfectly, we don't participate in those things. We don't embody them well. And that's where Jesus is the fullness. He is God incarnate. So he is the source made manifest, incarnated amongst us. Um like Maximus the Confessor, he's like an Eastern Orthodox theologian from I think the 8th or 9th century, I can't remember. He wrote a book called The Cosmological Christ. So this is going back to what you said, David, where Jesus is the center of the cosmos. And if you remove him, the rest of reality always has to fall apart. And so if your conception, especially if you're a Christian, if your conception of morality or like of goodness or truth or beauty doesn't have Christ at the center, then eventually it's going to fall apart. Mm. And I, I think we're in a crisis at the moment in terms of that negotiation because our culture doesn't agree that Christ is this cosmic Christ, you know, and we have to live. Augustine has this idea of um, use and enjoyment. So he says all the goods in the world, like the created world, including our neighbor or, you know, our married spouse or friend or whatever, everything that's created, if we don't enjoy God in it, it actually becomes hellish. Hmm. And that's why we need the, the, we need the frustration of the cross to like frustrate our aesthetic senses, our sense of morality, our sense of what goodness looks like, you know, all of these transcendentals so we can be freed from using creation in and of itself, like enjoying it as a God. And it's when we enjoy God in the created goods that our relationship to the transcendentals is restored. And that's when God's like glory, you know? And mm -hmm. so I think the future new creation will be a space in which the transcendentals are perfectly aligned with the way that we worship and live. But we're living in the now, but not yet, where we, we're not seeing that completion. We're not seeing you know, 
what you brought up into Timothy. Mm. So yeah, I think that's that's why the gospel makes so much sense because we see the effect of everything falling apart because Christ is in the center. Yeah, I just love that picture, Josh, that you said to like picture the world <laughs> without sunsets or picture the world without music. And it is so bleak without Christ. And I think as I tie this into vocation, I try and think of like that truth and beauty and goodness. You can't really have one without the other in my mind. And, and in vocation, our like compelling vision is to like bear the image of Christ and so that's also where we find truth, beauty, and goodness. And so you can't really separate them, but they're also intertwined all together. It's so compelling. And I also think, like, as a Christ follower, like, I'm compelled for that vision of my vocation to find, when I think of Genesis 1 and 2, like, we are compelled to unity. We're compelled to oneness. And so there's just, just this beautiful, like, interaction and interwoven thing when we talk about beauty and truth and goodness and it's really all about re-enchanting our lives. I think we all painted those pictures of, like, how we want to be compelled to, like, live out that vision in Christ. So, I think that's Absolutely. bang on, especially when you consider something like, um, like, if you look around us culturally, where, like, say, creation becomes God, not creator. You just have paganism. Or, like, when sunsets become God rather than the creator of sunsets everything that we believe when you remove the creator god out of it is just this derivative view of life that always constrains rather than like pushes you further in further up further in to quote lewis um and so i think that those become the antidotes to our culture's cravings because in my mind every part of life so like say you have like a porn addicted person right porn is the pervert the perverted icon rather than something that's chaste and pure and beautiful even if you take the cross right like david's saying mm -hmm. where it is violent and bloody and quote like ugly um it's done in sacrifice it's done in love it's because of these the ugliness around it that that image is so beautiful and so powerful and mm -hmm. so i think that every aspect of culture where we see, like you were saying, Jessica, chaos and disorder and frustration and anger and apathy mm -hmm. and cynicism is because people are settling for something that is not good, something that is not true, something that is not beautiful. And they don't want to say, right? So David, I think you're right. No, our culture is always going to reject Jesus as the center. And so I think we have to do what C.S. Lewis says, which is like covert kingdom warfare. Like the rightful no. king has landed. And then we have to do this like clandestine work of just laying seeds of real beauty. Right. So I go to the climbing gym all the time. My mission there is just to live a life that's so beautiful with loving my wife and my kid that they say, hey, I want to give up my tender sex life for intimacy like you and Aislinn have. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the subversion, right? And then you say, why do you, why are you so committed to Aislinn? And be like, because of Jesus. And it's the only way that anyone remains wholeheartedly committed to the good of the other is through yeah. Jesus. And so I think it's subversion and beauty is yeah. the apologetic in my mind that our culture needs. 
beauty as an apologetic is like 100%. Right. And I think that's right. I think that one of the things that has um, the church has let go of, like mm-hmm. completely let go of, is that is the beauty piece, and we and we sacrifice beauty on the altar of function, yeah, uh, of like what works. Utilitarian, Uti- it's, it's yeah, so utilitarian, so and it's it's tragic. It's so tragic, mm-hmm. and um, and this is why I think I think beauty is the is the, the new apologetic. I, and I really yeah. believe that. And I think dehumanization is when the relationship between the transcendentals breaks down and human beings start to lose their value. Mm-hmm. I think what's so amazing about the incarnation is that it becomes a bridge for fallen humanity to see what the transcendentals will look like in a human person. Mm. So yes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about how we all have a logos, like an idea, a philosophical idea of, what beauty looks like, what truth looks like, what morality looks like, you know, what goodness looks like. And we want to project that onto the world and we want to make the world ours and we want that godlike power to force our view on each other, which then creates like a dehumanization. And you see that with the kings or emperors of the Jewish people when they have this text that they write inspired probably from a Moses-like kind of um, origin of like, no, every human being is made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And you see the anti-dehumanization and the restoration of human vocation. You know, and I think we see with Athanasius, he says, what is assumed by Christ is healed. And so actually it's, it's a point where we cannot get there except by grace. But everything in our fallen sinful nature is like, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to get to beauty. I'm going to get to... And we break ourselves and we fall into this like dehumanizing, power-hungry, corporate cultural, you know, I can use other people to get there mm. and, 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 and throw them off. And you see that, you know, this abuse culture we're seeing across the church and world. And I think restoring the incarnational in the church is one of the ways, like is the central way <laughs> that we get there. And then obviously the help of the Holy Spirit who applies what Christ did in the incarnation to us mm-hmm. and we become mini Christs. You know? Yeah. And I think too, like it's something that I think N.T. Wright calls them echoes, mm-hmm. echoes or some echoes, some signposts, broken yeah. signposts. Yeah. yeah. Echoes, signposts. He's, I think, um, simply Christian. He talks about this and how it's almost like a memory. Mm-hmm. Like we remember in our bodies, um, integration, shalom, uh, goodness, truth, and beauty. They're wired into us. Which I think this is why it's a beautiful apologetic because I think people deeply, deeply want all of these things. They want beauty, mm-hmm. they ultimately want goodness, and they want truth. Even if we live in a post-truth, uh, relativistic goodness, mm-hmm. and I think a, a like a, a like an insatiable desire for beauty, mm-hmm. we we deeply want them, mm-hmm. and I think they get arranged um, mm-hmm. through the cross. They get rightly ordered. This yes. is like. Augustine, rightly ordered, loves, all of these things get rightly ordered. And I think rightly lived out. This is vocation. Mm-hmm. Rightly lived into and rightly imaged through vocation, through like humanity's first vocation to live into this. This is like our now redeemed um, vocation, like what Christ has called us to be and do in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in Christ, there is this kind of mystery, what we talked about, the, the mystery of desire. And when it's aligned and ordered, I just love what you said, Josh, too, where it, when it is like that, you can never have enough of the beauty 
can mm. never have enough goodness. You can never have enough truth. And it's just so compelling. And when I tie that into vocation, I often like get out of alignment of like, wait, I need, I need grace. I need to be reminded. I need to be compelled. And I also love, David, that you said it's all about grace as well. So there is this mystery and grace that's mixed into our pursuit of finding that. It's just so compelling, so compelling in Christ. Mm. So, Yeah. I was just going to say, I think the mystery has to be there. Like, David, with what you said, say the dehumanizing and trying to take this stuff for our, ourselves to make it our own, do it our way. That's the sin of the garden, right? And that's where Jesus being successful in the garden is another like redemptive, massive, obviously redemptive storyline. But the idea of mystery, that's why I think beauty is the like the main apologetic that our culture needs right now. Because Dave, what you were saying with like a relativistic morality, a post-truth, like a postmodern idea of truth, beauty is a pre-rational thing. You don't get to choose when a poem or music or painting makes you cry or get goosebumps. You don't rationalize it. It overwhelms you. It drowns you. My brother sent me a, um, a poem by a Canadian poet about making sure you die well. And uh, I was just drawing, listening to recording. I started crying. I'm not a big crier, but I was like, man, I didn't get to rationalize this. I just felt it. Yeah. That's and right. so I think that's where the mystery comes from. So because God is infinite, this is where things get amazing in my mind. God not only being source and antidote, that is, mm -hmm. I think, like an outward facing, this is kingdom, this is evan quote unquote evangelism, however we want to conceptualize what that looks like. When I think about what it looks like for people on the inside, people who already follow Jesus, um, the mystery is that the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Spirit, they are infinite in their beauty, their truth, and their goodness. And so the mystery is, how do I behold one person, or one like three persons in one, for the rest of eternity, and just keep coming to new summits of joy and pleasure and excitement etc and it's the mystery of god being infinite right so like uh i think that's where jessica what you're saying it is such a beautiful and compelling thing because every time you think you get to the bottom and you say finally i made it my soul my body can take no more god opens up a whole new vista of what it looks like to experience his beauty and I think that, or his goodness, or his truth, and I think that is such a compelling conception of what the new heavens and new earth will be like. And I think within that is, you know, our culture has a lot of harmful forms of ecstasy. You know, people going wild limits, or punishing their bodies, or whatever they're doing to try to, and I think what I love about the Trinity, the idea that, like, God is the son and, son and bonum, the, like, ultimate good, the ultimate beauty, um, the ultimate truth, like truth is a personal reality of God, that that leads us to safe ecstasy. Like I remember coming out of the atheist gay world and being at this crazy charismatic world, uh, charismatic church, which was so ecstatic. Everyone's with their hands up, speaking in tongues. I'm like, what is going on here? And it was like, the Holy Spirit said to me, you know, worshiping God is like kissing God. Like this is a safe ecstasy. You can throw yourself into god and you it will never harm you beauty truth 
you know, all of it, all the transcendentals can be like safely enjoyed. And I don't think our culture has that. We do not have safe ecstasy. And so we're seeing so many forms of abuse and downfall in the church and in the world. So yeah, I think this conversation is just the beginning of how do we bring safe forms of ecstasy that are well-boundaried, that are personal and are not just conceptual in our heads. And I think that's one of the problems with Platonism. We, we saw the resurgence of Platonism in the Renaissance and there was also very anti-women views in those those classical philosophers. Women were seen as like less able <laughs> to enjoy those transcendentals. And we are seeing the resurgence of an embrace of the of woman, mm. of Eve and the restoration of the full image of God in terms of gender and sexuality as well. So I think this safe ecstasy, this safe enjoyment that God gives us is just so important for our wow. culture. The safe ecstasy just blew my mind. That's so good. Going back to creation of God made us to participate in the fullness of his person, which is his pleasure. And the idea is everything that we do that doesn't orient us towards him unmakes us. And so when we settle for like what you said, unsafe versions of ecstasy, we're settling for perversions of beauty, perversions of truth, perversions of goodness, and it totally dehumanizes us. But then there are these versions when we are pointed towards him that make us more human. It's literally the fall all over again. It's disintegration. You lose, like you lose yourself and become disintegrated. And it's so funny that you said safe ecstasy and you shared your story because I was literally yesterday I was on a personal retreat mm-hmm. and I was I was just journaling, reflecting <laughs> about like on the first time that I I, I ever was like in um in a like a true encounter of of, of God mm-hmm. and it was uh, right after I got saved. Um I came out of like tons of drugs and tons of like ecstasy nights, you know, with drugs. Yeah. And <laughs> um, and then get into this, and I was invited to a men's retreat, and I think I was only like 16, 17, something like that, and I went to the men's retreat the first night, and the pastor taught um, on God saving Moses, taking Moses, like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to end this cycle of injustice through your life, and then I went through this, like, worship set, and it was the most, I, I remember journaling, this is the best drug I've ever yeah. taken, and it's the safe ecstasy sort of thing. Yeah, I was like, what? is this it was like an encounter with god and i was like i want this forever you can't get enough of it you know it's like that tozer thing to have found god but still be looking for god is the soul's is it soul's ecstasy of love mm-hmm. yeah i soul's mean augustine some... is just full of all of that yeah, yeah, all yeah. the time he's like you're the fire of my heart like i got overcome by your beauty and now i'm just like captivated and everything else oh, yes. tastes like nothing <laughs> compared to you and i'm like yeah confessions you know <laughs> yes you're like, I want to study other people, but that's pretty captivating. That's so, I cry every time I read that quote. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It reminded me um, in David, in the vocation series, we talked about this framework of three layers of like thinking and being is one, uh, feeling is the other, and the third is doing. And I think about in our pursuit of our vocation, how those three frameworks also align with me in our good, beautiful, and true pursuit. And I think it's beautiful, Josh, you mentioned that experience of like how you just started crying about thinking of that thought of like drawing and listening to music that I think, gosh, that is so beautiful. How often we might miss out on feeling. But then when I think about the pursuit of the framework of good, beautiful and true, we all need all three as well. And so I think if we go too far as well, we're going to miss out on how they are all interconnected. And so 
I think part of our invitation, our deeper invitation into vocation is to like invoke what we think, feel, do, and be together, but how it relates to what's good and true and beautiful. It's so compelling. And yeah. if our workplace is not letting us yeah. engage in those three, there's like a deficiency in the workplace. And so how do we make the church a place where those are accessible for all people, whatever their role, totally. that they're dignified. They're not just like, you know, administrator who does all the stuff for me so I can enjoy my beauty, you know, whatever. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, even as a theologian, people are like, oh my gosh, you're a theologian. It's, you come from, you know, the, the celestial rea- realms. And I'm like, celestial. no, actually, <laughs> I'm right down here. Out, <laughs> sometimes I just yeah. need to have some earthy, safe ecstasy over here. <laughs> and people are like, oh my gosh, I thought David Bennett was this like super nerdy Oxford guy. You're like, no, can we go out to dinner and party? <laughs> Well, Josh, I mean, we can keep doing this forever, and I want to. Um, but this, I think this was a really good introduction to mm. this idea that you've like given part of your vocation to, the, your, the work that you do um, in helping people be oriented and shaped around these ideas. And I just thank you so much for your work yeah. and, um, and even just agreeing to, to be with us. Um, uh, so we're starting a, a series on this, and this, I think this is a really good... Um, like I said, introduction to these these ideas, um, but I would really love for you to like to have like a a final word on like uh, the transcendentals. What you know, as an artist, um, probably as a, a new a new father, as um, as someone who's who's given themselves to a vocation that is that used to be very common in the church, mm. but now is not common. Yes, and um, both theology and art. Yeah, what 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 would would be kind of like the, the, the takeaway, the final thing? Beyond the fact that these ideas are true, like and the the core of the cosmos kind of thing, the reason that these ideas resonate with me is they continually call me to something bigger than my circumstance, right? Like I have faced over the past year some very ugly situations. Um. And I have been tempted to become a very ugly person in the midst of those things. But every moment of my life is actually an invitation to experience and embody God's goodness, truth, and beauty. And it's not just me. It's for everyone. And so the hardest of situations when we want to use real ecstasy rather than, say, spiritual ecstasy to just numb the pain the transcendentals call us to something deeper, more stable, like ultimate reality. And so I think for me, um, as an artist and writer, and then like you, David, someone who does not live in ivory towers, I rub shoulders with very um, rough and tumble people. Do people say that nowadays, rough and tumble? Uh, um, we do now. It's very tech. I don't very think textural, so. Very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, Static. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think that for me, like the the artist in me says, "Hey, I've been given eyes to see something, and I want to give other people eyes to see this." And I don't think it makes sense just in the ivory tower or within like the church walls. I think that the transcendentals is invitation into Jesus as source, the triune God as source, is the most nitty gritty 
kingdom reality thing we can bring to the world around us. Um, and it always, I believe, starts within our hearts and souls. Beautiful. Thank you, Josh. This has been marvelous. Hey, my absolute pleasure and honor. 